Uh, what is the devil's favorite Bible verse? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Uh, we know that the devil knows God's word. It's one of the first things that we learn about him, actually, in the Bible. Way back in the Garden of Eden, the devil slinks in as a snake and he questions and undermines the instructions of God that he's given to Adam and Eve. The devil is in the business of taking truths about God and even things that God has said about himself and twisting them in order to deceive people. And so while it might sound like a flippant place to start, I suggest it's actually a good question for us to ask. What is the devil's favorite Bible verse? What does he most want us to get wrong? What does he think that we're most likely to get wrong? Well, look, I don't have an intimate knowledge of the devil and of his schemes, but I do think that we can make an educated guess about that question. Because there is one occasion where the devil directly quotes from the Bible. Is that the temptation of Jesus? If you remember, Jesus is in the wilderness, uh, and in a wonderful statement of the obvious, we're told after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the devil tempts him. He takes him to the top of the temple, and he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes what I suggest could be his favorite Bible verse. It is Psalm 91, verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And this should give us pause. Because it means that this psalm is open to misunderstanding and to misapplication. If the devil wanted Jesus to get it wrong, we can be fairly sure that he wants us to get it wrong. And more than that, if Jesus was genuinely tempted in the wilderness, as I think we hold to be true, then it is quite likely that we will be genuinely tempted in that same way. This psalm is for many, it is for me, one of those great passages of scripture that comfort and hope, often in the hardest of circumstances. But we can't take shortcuts with it. I'm convinced that if we read it in a shallow way, like the devil does, we'll be disappointed. But if we see some of its depths together, well, we'll take great comfort and hope from it. So let's see what it has to say as we look at it together. It won't surprise you that peace is really the word of the day. Just look at the imagery in those first two verses there. Dwelling has the idea of making home somewhere. Dwelling in a shelter has the idea of making home somewhere safe. And this safe shelter, it is in the shadow of God. There is a safe place which is home, which is in the presence and the proximity of Almighty God. He himself is the refuge and the fortress. The psalmist says, I can trust in him. Shelter and shadow, refuge and fortress, four pictures of peace in the opening words here. And four names for God too. Most high, almighty, the Lord my God. 
It's little wonder this psalm is a favorite for so many. It presents an extraordinary image of the God who protects his people in their need. It gives them rock-solid confidence as he does so. In the uncertainties of life, here is the stable ground to stand on. In the pain of sickness, in the grief of loss, here is the God who draws you close to him and promises you peace and makes sure you can be certain of it. However, we must be careful to hear the promise of peace as God intended it, not as the devil might want to distort it. Sadly, many people teach from the Bible and from passages like this one that God promises to remove from each and every one of us all of the troubles and the trials that we might face immediately. They say that if we pray in faith, we can be assured that God will cure every sickness or provide for every financial need or even still us in each sleepless night. I think that is to demand now from the psalm what it promises us for the future. And I think it sells a psalm short of its real potency and power. The Christian writer Philip Yancey has written a book entitled Disappointment with God. And he explains why. He says this, I found that for many people, there is a large gap between what they expect from their Christian faith and what they actually experience. From a steady diet of books, sermons, and personal testimonies, all promising triumph and success, they learn to expect dramatic evidence of God working in their lives. If they do not see such evidence, they feel disappointment, betrayal, and often guilt. A promise that God will whisk your troubles away is a shallow promise. Literally, it is devilish. It is cruel because it denies the godliness of faithful perseverance. And ultimately, it is disappointing because it does not meet the deeper and more lasting needs that we have. This psalm is a promise of comfort in the present and of hope for the future. But it's a deep one, not a shallow one. It's a lasting one, not a temporary one. The peace God offers is a spiritual peace. So in the final few moments we have together, I want to identify just three points of application for finding peace from this psalm. Here's the first. Find peace from God's judgment. And particularly here, I'm looking at verses three to eight. For all the language of shelter and of protection in the psalm, it's easy to gloss over what we need protection from. But these verses here are pregnant with imagery that is used again and again in the Bible for the coming judgment of God. Some of the images are military, uh, arrows are flying, thousands are falling. Some of the images are agricultural, there's pestilence and plague. All of these images are used elsewhere in the writings and in the prophets to speak of God's judgment against sin in the world. The context here, though, is not one of condemnation. It is one of invitation. This is the Lord telling us that our deepest needs are spiritual, uh, that the peace we need above all is peace with God, and that peace is available to us if we will find our shelter in him. 
most striking there is verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. This image the Lord Jesus himself took up shortly before he went to the cross. He looked out over Jerusalem and he wept for a people who were far from God, unrepentant in their sin, facing his judgment. And with tears he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And then he adds, and you were not willing. There's an extraordinary church now on the Mount of Olives on what is purported to be that site where Jesus said those words. And in that church, there's a window that looks out down the valley and over into Jerusalem. And in front of the window, there's a communion table that has a picture on it of a hen with its wings outstretched, gathered around its chicks. That's the invitation of Jesus in the gospel. With love and with care and with compassion, he longs to gather to himself his people to protect them from the judgment of God against sin. That is true peace and protection. Helpless as a little chick, but covered by the wings of the one who will do anything to save us. So find peace from God's judgment. Here's a second. Find peace in God's rescue. And this is verses 9 to 13. We've seen from the temptation of Jesus that these verses uh, don't mean that God will rescue us out of every problem that we might face immediately with a click of a fingers. But that doesn't mean that these verses aren't a promise of true and genuine rescue. He really will protect us from harm. His angels really will guard us. What the devil had got wrong when he tempted Jesus with these verses is that he offered Jesus peace without sacrifice, glory without the cross. As he invited Jesus to jump from the top of the temple, I don't doubt that his angels would have come to rescue him and to lift him up. Just as at his arrest, when his disciple drew his sword against Jesus' enemies, he said he would have plenty of backup from legions of angels if he so wanted to call them. It must have been terribly tempting for Jesus to choose the path that said no. He chose instead, in humility, to go the way of the cross. He chose in self-sacrifice to suffer for the sake of a greater glory and a greater peace that he won on our behalf. As a writer to the Hebrews puts it, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So verse 13 is key for us here, isn't it? You will tread on the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. There is a true and lasting peace to trust in. It is the peace that comes from the defeat of evil fully and finally and forever. 
Back in the garden, as the devil slunk around as a snake, he twisted God's words and tempted God's people and came under God's curse. And God said, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So here in this psalm, the promise of a saviour who will tread and trample the prowling lion of the devil who devours God's people. The promise of a saviour who will tread and trample the snake of the devil who deceives and destroys those who trust in his lies. This saviour did crush the head of that snake. But in order to do so, his heel was struck. The victory Jesus won at the cross means a free offer of rescue for us, but it was a costly victory for him. He didn't take any shortcuts on the way to glory, and he doesn't promise us any shortcuts either. What he does promise is his presence with us in our present struggles and our lasting peace with him in our future glory. The shape of the gospel is death now and glory later, of perseverance now and of peace to come, of, as a hymn writer puts it, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. There is peace in the midst of all of that, but it's a deep peace of the Lord with us. And that's why I want to leave you with our third point here. Uh, Find peace with God's assurance. Find peace from God's judgment, find peace in God's rescue, find peace with God's assurance. Because this psalm ends where it began, with a word of confidence for us. Just glance down at verses 14 to 16. I make it six times in three verses that the Lord says, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He is the Lord who rescues, protects, answers, joins with, delivers and satisfies his people. He says it again and again and he stakes his name on it. Those aren't hollow words. They aren't empty promises. He really will be there for us in the midst of what we face now and with our eyes fixed on what he has in store for us in the future. And in the promise-making, promise-keeping language of a wedding service, he says, I will, I will, in commitment to us. I don't know where you need to hear those words of comfort and of hope today. I don't know what pressures you are facing. I don't know what guilt and shame you bear I don't know what griefs you carry. But I do know that Jesus is the safe place to flee to for the forgiveness of our sins and the protection from the coming judgment. I do know that the death blow Jesus struck to evil at the cross was decisive and the rescue he offers is effective. I do know that we can be so certain of these things now as to look forward with eager anticipation for a lasting peace with God. Let me give the final word to the American writer, Betsy Childs Howard, who puts things brilliantly well. 
The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer to this question is not excellent hospice care and pain management. No, comfort in death has nothing to do with physical comfort and everything to do with whether there is joy set before you. The Christian's only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. We don't have to be martyred to know this kind of comfort. But if we spend all our energies seeking comfort of circumstance, we won't know where to find the abiding comfort that could be ours at the end. So then, as the writer to the Hebrews would have it, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.